All right, let's talk about um, uh, the man Isaiah. Now, if, you, if you'll go with me to chapter 6, I'm going to refer a little bit to chapter 1. We'll be in chapter 6. We'll also be a little bit in the book of Revelation because there's some parallel stuff that we'll deal with there and a little bit in the book of Exodus. So that'll kind of give you uh, a picture of where we're going to be. Now, uh, when you go to your favorite restaurant, um, what do you expect? Well, you expect the cook to know what they're doing um, when, you, when you order an omelet that they don't serve you eggs benedict. Okay, you need, they, they need to know the difference. But I would think that kind of the, the bottom line, a basic expectation you'd have of your chef is that they at least have clean hands. Okay? Uh, what, what is the sign in every restroom in every restaurant now? <laughs> I love it because you can quote it verbatim. All employees have got to wash your hands before you go back to work. Um, I think that's supposed to make us feel comfortable. Actually, it doesn't do that for me, but okay. Now, so what is the bottom line requirement for a deliverer of spiritual food? And that's what uh, we're going to call Isaiah today. He is kind of a spiritual chef. Now, almost any job requires a person to be qualified in some way to do it. But what qualifies a person to be a prophet? of the Most High God. You would think there'd be a long list of qualifications for that. Um, and so as we consider in this series on God's call on our lives, as we consider God's call to Isaiah as a prophet, we may be surprised to learn that the standard that applied to Isaiah as a deliverer of spiritual food is similar to what we expect of those who prepare physical food. Cleanness. Now, we're going to review today the call on this great man's life. What I want us to begin from the premise of is this. He was expected as a deliverer of spiritual food to have clean hands and a clean heart. But he wasn't expected to do the work of cleaning up himself. We're going to talk about that and see a picture of that today. Now, Isaiah received his call to be a prophet about 200 years after the nation of Israel uh, separated into two kingdoms. That was about 931 B.C. The, the, uh, the northern ten tribes broke off from the southern two and uh, kind of, kind of, a, kind of a, a rift or, or a civil war somewhat took place there. Isaiah was living when the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722. He knew about that, even though he was living in the south. His primary ministry was to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, um, he was a, what I would call, do you use this term anymore? He was what I would call a courtier. Uh, hung around the palace. Was known by those in, in great power. Look at... Um, if you will, just turn back real quick to chapter 1, verse 1. It's going to give us uh, a kind of a picture of this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So that's the southern kingdom, uh, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who were all kings of Judah. So these were, um, his, his ministry spanned 
the lives and uh, the reign of several southern kings in the, in the southern kingdom of Judah. And he was friends with all these people. So when you think of Isaiah, don't, uh, we're going to be in Jeremiah next week. If you want to read the first chapter of Jeremiah, that's will be next week. And you're going to think of a guy here who's kind of, he's kind of beaten down and perplexed and depressed and not all that connected. He's putting stocks at one point in his life. That's Jeremiah. By contrast, Isaiah hung out in the White House quite a bit. Go there when you're thinking about a guy who's connected in political circles. That's Isaiah by comparison with some of the other prophets. Some of the other prophets, you know, kind of dress funny and, and, uh, and all that. Isaiah was a guy who's kind of well, well connected. He looked good, wore the best clothes, all that kind of stuff, and hung out in the palace. That's a, and it, his was a very interesting um, call by comparison with some of his peers as prophets. By the way, if you know a little bit about his book, you know it's sometimes called the Bible in miniature. It's the same number of chapters as there are chapters in the Bible. So um, that'll kind of give you a little bit of clue. Uh, I don't expect you to read the whole book of Isaiah this week, but okay. Um, all right. Now, so um, the life of Isaiah illustrates the wide range of circumstances in which a prophet of the Lord could find himself as he carried out his mission. He served the Lord during the reign of one of Judah's most wicked kings, a guy by the name of Ahaz, okay? Ahaz, not Ahab, we've talked about him before. As well as during the reign of one of Judah's best. Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, who is one of uh, Judah's best kings. So he, he went, his, his leadership or um, um, his um, prophetic ministry took place during the reigns of kings that were pretty despicable and others who were very righteous. Uh, he saw both ends of that spectrum. Um, Isaiah's counsel uh, really guided king, good King Hezekiah during this an Assyrian invasion that threatened uh, the southern kingdom in 701, which was 21 years or so after the fall of the northern kingdom. And, but Judah was spared that onslaught because because of, um, partially at least because of Isaiah's advice and because of Hezekiah's good leadership. Now, Isaiah's call is, next week we'll look in uh, Jeremiah and we'll read about his call in chapter one. We don't really read about Isaiah's call until chapter six and that's a little bewildering, bewildering here. Uh, why is it not recorded closer to the beginning? Um, but it may be that the that if you read the first five chapters of Isaiah and, and the way he describes the despicable condition of the nation uh, when he came on the scene and how desperately uh, uh, God's people were needed to be confronted, uh, maybe that sets it in place. In fact, Isaiah 5 features a word picture of a vineyard to describe both the Lord's care for his people and his disappointment in them. And so... Isaiah, his call is, happens kind of in the context of that. And it could be that the first five, first five chapters are kind of setting the tone for Isaiah's call um, and that um, it just kind of organized in a different way. Um, Hebrews 11 um, kind of refers to something that may be about Isaiah. Some scholars think it's about Isaiah. Because uh, Jewish tradition teaches that um, Isaiah suffered 
a martyr's death, a cruel death, um, by being sawn in two at the end of his life. And if you read Hebrews eleven thirty-seven, it'll talk about those who uh, remain faithful um, in 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 the context of of uh, uh, persecution, including being sawn in two. It, that may be uh, Hebrews eleven thirty-seven may be talking about Isaiah himself here. Okay, so he's got an interesting life, uh, and he's got some interesting things to tell us. And these first eight verses of chapter six are a classic study. Um, uh, I have actually elaborate power, uh, um, uh, presentations on this eight verses that have to do with the design or an outline for uh, Christian worship. But we won't go there today. We'll go a different direction with this. Now, um, Dr. Blair, would you, <laughs> do you notice he kind of perked up when I said that? He, would you read the first three verses of Isaiah 6? The king's name is Uzziah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Okay. Now, um, if you hang in there, okay. I'm going to ask Mr. Huff, Sherman, would you go to 2 Chronicles 16? We're going to get to that in just a minute. 2 Chronicles, actually 26, 16. I'm going to have you read four or five verses right there in a minute. And we'll just pass the mic back and forth. Second Chronicles 26, we'll start at 16, and I'll have you read that in just a minute. Okay, now, um, he mentions here Uzziah. This was good king Uzziah. He becomes king in about 740 B.C. His, his reign is actually a long, one of the longer reigns in the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, I'm reading, I'm doing in my devotional reading, some reading in, in Second Chronicles. And um, uh, what I'm realizing is that I have to be very careful when I'm reading this section of Scripture. Because they have interchangeable names uh, with some of them. It's like, okay, who am I talking about again? Who am I reading about? Um, if you read about Azariah, King Azariah, that's also Uzziah. I don't know if that's a nickname. I don't know, anyway, the family name, another spelling, whatever. But some, so you'll also hear him called Azariah in some places. Um, he was a really, really good king, a long-standing, long-reigning king, with one exception. He, um, there's, he made one mistake that cost him kind of dearly. Toward the end of his life, in defiance of what kings were to do and what priests were to do, he entered the temple or entered the tabernacle and burned incense there. And, um, and he's confronted by the priests for this action. Priests are only supposed to be the only ones burning incense around the altar, but he decided he'd do that himself. Now, Sherman, can you go to your, your uh, portion there? Start with verse 16 in 2 Chronicles 26 and read through 21. This is on Uzziah's sin and punishment. But when he had become powerful, he also became proud, which led to his downfall. He sinned against the Lord his God by entering the sanctuary of the Lord's temple and personally burning incense on the incense altar. 
Isaiah, the high priest, went in after him with 80 other priests of the Lord, all brave men. They confronted, confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is the work of the priests alone, the descendants of Aaron who are set apart for this work. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have sinned. The Lord God will not honor you for this. Uzziah, who was holding the incense burner, became furious. But as he was standing there, raging at the priest before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy suddenly broke out on his forehead. When Uzziah, Azariah, the high priest and all the other priests saw the leprosy, they rushed him out. And the king himself was eager to get out because the Lord had struck him. So King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in isolation, a separate house, for he was excluded from the temple of the Lord. His son Jonathan was put in charge of the royal palace, and he governed the people of the land. Thank you. Now, the story is he defied the, what God wanted and the burned incense in the temple. You'd think that in the, in the tabernacle, you'd think that'd be kind of a minor offense uh, in the temple, actually, it was. Um, you think that'd be kind of a minor offense, but kings weren't supposed to do that. That's what the job of priests and Levites. And and, um, and so he was kind of defiant in doing so. And if you notice what Sherman um, read, the, the priest confronted him on it, and he kind of bowed up a little bit and uh, was stricken with leprosy. And he was quarantined then for the rest of his life. Now, what I think is interesting here is despite his disobedience, he's still beloved after his life. In fact, uh, as Isaiah begins his testimony here in Isaiah 6, he's going to say, in the year that King Uzziah died, there's kind of a sadness, there's a moan to that. As he says, this is a friend of mine. This is someone that he, uh, that he respected. Now, what are some descriptive words from verse 1 of what Isaiah saw in this vision and by the way, it's a vision of heaven. What did he see? So seraphim, okay. He saw the Lord. And what was and how were the, what were the descriptors of, of the Lord God? High, lifted up, okay. And he's got a veil that fills the temple, okay. So there's, there's some majesty involved in this. You got this? But there's another piece that I want to be sure we catch. Now listen to this description of heaven in Revelation 4. Okay, I'm going to go to Revelation 4, 2. All right. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Now, what I want you and I to catch in the context of our kind of desperate world, and Isaiah lived in a day when it was a desperate world. What is God doing in Isaiah's picture? He's sitting on, sitting on the throne. It's a, it is a sign of power. I'm, I'm hearing your voice. I can't find you, Estella. There you are. I'm sorry. I'm looking right through you. Couldn't find you. Sorry. Sorry? Okay. You know, I need a red light to go on when she's talking so I can find her. Uh, He's seated on a throne, which is, and Stella appropriately says it, that's a kind of a, a sign of power. Now, here's what I want you to catch. You notice that despite what's going on in Isaiah's world, and there's a lot going on, the kingdom will eventually fall. 
The northern kingdom has already fallen. The king has been sick and now is dead. That's always a difficult time. What's going to happen in the next reign? And God is sitting down. What do you think God's doing in heaven today? And by the way, you, you look at uh, Revelation is a, is a depiction of, of a scene from heaven from at least 2,000 la years later, probably uh, 2,700 year, years later or more. It's the idea of, um, of um, uh, future or at least current what's going on in heaven in the day of Revelation, which would have been seven 800 years after Isaiah's vision. And then you and I can, can go 2,000 years further. What? What's God doing in heaven while all this stuff is going on in our world? He's sitting down. He is still on the throne. You notice you never, you never see God depicted as I would be wringing his hands. You never see God depicted pacing. You know, Looking out the window, oh, what am I going to do now? He's seated on the throne. That ought to bring you some comfort. Can I tell you, right now, this instant in heaven, according to scripture, God is seated on the throne. Who's in charge? God is seated on the throne. What in the world's going to happen to our world? God is seated on the throne. That's kind of important, don't you think? There has never been a time in history when people didn't kind of wring their hands over what's going on in the world. And in all of those epochs of time, God was seated on the throne. It's kind of important. So Isaiah says, I saw the Lord in all of his holiness and he was seated on the throne. Now in verse two, it describes some attendants around him. And if you read um, parallel sections of, as John describes heaven in the book of Revelation in chapters 4 and 5, you'll, you'll see these same creatures there. They, they're kind of funny looking. They've got six wings and a bunch of eyes and all that stuff. They're actually worship leaders in heaven, believe it or not. And there's a picture here of these seraphim, which the word seraphim literally means fiery, there's some fire involved in God's presence. And so here they are uh, in this picture and also in Revelation 4, if we were to read it, their faces are covered by wings and their feet are covered by wings. I'm gonna suggest to you that these angels, uh, that those positions are uh, positions of submission. Put that in your next blank. Submission. As these pretty fantastic creatures are depicted in Isaiah's vision and later in John's vision. They are, literally you could argue, from head to toe in submission to the holy God seated on the throne. From head to toe. All right? And this whole scene in verse 3 is surrounded by the holiness of God. You can read about it in Revelation. You can read about it in Psalms. Uh, put some, some uh, um, um, references there. What's going on in heaven? 
now what was going on heaven in heaven in God's in Isaiah's day and in John's day worship using this what I would call here the thrice or the triune holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty so when we sing those words uh, in that sequence uh, in our day we're singing a song that actually is being sung most of the time, if not all the time, in heaven, talking about the holiness of God. Now, the word holy here means we used it a little bit last week when we talked about Moses standing on holy ground. Holy here indicates distinctiveness, not like other things, distinctiveness. Moses and Isaiah were allowed to see God's holiness. And my question to you, I won't answer it now. I'll answer it in a little bit. What would happen if you and I, were, if the, the curtain was peeled back even a little bit, and you and I were allowed to see the holiness of God, how would it make you feel? Think about that for just a minute. If you were allowed to see the holiness of God in all of his splendor for even five minutes, how would it make you feel? We're going to see how it made Isaiah feel here, okay? Now let's get to that, all right? We're going to start here in verse 4 and 5, and uh, Cindy, can I get you to pick up there? Isaiah 6, verse 4 and 5. Here's Isaiah's reaction to what he saw in heaven. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Almighty Lord God. Okay, now, um, the stage is kind of set here. Isaiah sees it. Listen to Exodus 19, 18. This is a description of Mount Sinai. When the people kind of can see it from a distance, actually. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like a smoke of furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. So what we've got here, that picture of Sinai with God's presence, is similar to Isaiah's picture of, um, of heaven here. Smoke and earthquakes, and they're pretty unsettling. If you and I walked into the sanctuary in 30 minutes... And it was filled with smoke. That would be a bit unsettling. If you walked in and the sanctuary now is filled with smoke, was rumbling, that would be even more unsettling. So the word that I want you to put in your blank is the setup here is for terror. Terror. Fear. Awesomeness. That's how it's set up. The stage is kind of set for that. And what happens in verse 5 is for the first time, you know, the angels have been singing around the throne. These seraphim have been singing around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Okay, they've been singing that. But God speaks in verse 5 for the first time as he's going to call Isaiah. Very important here to catch this. And as he calls to him, Isaiah recognizes something. Let me read verse 5 from the New American Standard again. That's what it says. 
Then I said, here's Isaiah's words, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, this is very important to see. I Remember I asked you a minute ago, what would you do? What would your response be if you were able to just for a second see the holiness of God? Here's Isaiah's response to it. Woe is me. What does that mean? Yeah. In the New American Standard, it says, I am ruined. I'm had. I've had it. Uh-oh. Any of those, you know, we could come up with 50 different of those kind of responses. Uh-oh. Or if you're a Scooby-Doo, rut-row, okay? Yeah. Isaiah's response to God's holiness is, I'm undone. I'm out of place. There is a gap between the blinding holiness of God and the very humanness and uncleanness of Isaiah. In fact, he says, says it here, some scholars think even Isaiah may have had trouble with uh, profanity. Interesting context, verse five. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people who are the same way. Now, I don't know if that's the case or not. All I know is that when, God, when Isaiah saw the blinding holiness of God, he realized how unholy he was. Saw the gap, and he realized that he's had, he's undone. And so he responds in this way. God's holiness magnifies Isaiah's unholiness. read the thought how could I ever get there what's what is it Los Lonely Boys that sing How Far Is Heaven how can I ever get there he's so holy and I'm so, not. The beauty of this is I don't have to clean up myself when I see that moment. God sends an angel to clean up Isaiah's life, to make him fit to be the prophet he wants him to be, to accept his call. Upon And it's all based on, I just love this, it's all based on Isaiah's confession that he doesn't qualify. It is the person at your favorite restaurant who walks into the restroom and they see the sign and they say, that doesn't apply to me. Not Isaiah. Isaiah sees the blinding holiness, the purity of God, and he says, how could I ever even live after this? Because I'm so unclean. That confession causes God to act. Cindy, can we go to verse 6? Read 6, 7, and 8. 
Then it's, one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. I want you to catch a couple of things here. You don't have to clean yourself up. God's got a system in place for you to close that gap between you and him. And it's wonderful here. Uh, and he uses fire because in the Bible, fire always changes things. It just always changes things. This is kind of important. God's fire purifies. Isaiah has confessed, I am ruined. I am unclean. And God says, I got it. I got that. The act of sheer cleansing is all on God's part. Notice it's not on Isaiah's part. Isaiah's only part is to admit, I am not clean. I love it. A couple years ago, we were in Michigan in a, uh, in one in my kids' uh, uh, kind of guest bedroom, kind of not a guest bedroom, kind of a playroom, but we stay in there sometimes. And there was a little lamp beside the bed that I couldn't figure out how to turn off. So I just decided I would uh, unscrew the bulb. Not smart. I, I'm, I'm quite sure now that I can no longer be fingerprinted. <laughs> Hurt for two or three days, you know. I went and got ice and cold water and all that. I, I was I was a, a senior in college, maybe maybe a junior in college. We were living in Florida, and um, um, I had uh, uh, we were really near where we went to school. Really near Disney, and in those days, you just paid like one fee to get in Disney, and then to ride the ride, you had to buy a, a ticket book. You ever heard the term e-ticket? That's where that comes from. Okay, uh, and we'd go over there. We drive the 30 minutes or whatever over there and go kind of hang out and eat dinner or whatever and uh, listen to bands play and that kind of stuff. Over there one evening and I had a, uh, a late night recording session. The guy I was working for really liked to do late night recording sessions and I was one of his trumpet players. And right before we left the park, you could get something in Disney World in that day that you couldn't get these days, that, that you can get everywhere. That you can get it, you know, whatever grocery store these days. In those days, you couldn't get it anywhere but there. They were like, Juice bars, like a popsicle, except it was made out of juice, in particular made out of either strawberries or, uh, or orange juice. And I just love these orange juice bars. So right before we left the park, I grabbed an orange juice bar. I was going to eat it on the way out. And I grabbed that orange juice bar, and the paper was stuck to it. So I did this thing where you tear the end of the bag. This works, by the way. You just don't do it the way I did. You tear the bag, you get the popsicle stick, you blow on it, and it kind of makes it come apart, and then you pull the bag off, and everything's cool. The only problem is that when I did that, my top lip hit the popsicle itself and stuck. So I thought, oh, no problem. Just pull it off. When I pulled it off, I, 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 kind of a a half-inch section of my lip went with it and bled like crazy. I went, uh, I went to the, you know, I tried to get uh, the bleeding to stop at a, at, a, uh, 
at a uh, uh, water fountain. And doing, so uh, I literally at like 11 o'clock, I had to play all night long. So I went to 7-Eleven, which was the only thing open by that time of night, and got some teething gel. Anbasol, you know, teething gel, or one of those things. And just I just kept coating my lip and blowing, blowing blood all night, you know. Here's the picture of Isaiah. God says, I'm going to take care of this, and here's how I'm going to take care of it. One of these seraphim, he takes those hands that were once over his eyes, and he goes to the altar before the throne of God, and he gets um, some Kingsford charcoal, quite hot. And he says, I'm going to clean up your lips. And the angel touches his mouth with that. Fire changes things. It cleans things up. The beauty of this verse 6 is that the prophet is now Having confessed this kind of sinful bent in his life, the prophet's now forgiven. He's just forgiven. Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that if I will confess my sins, he is faithful and just, forgive me. Literally, the idea here is, I know it sounds really kind of gruesome and hard, and we don't know if this hurt Isaiah or not, but my guess is if it did, right after that, he felt this beautiful feeling of just relief, forgiveness, cleansing. God forgave him. That's, that's the uniqueness of Christianity is in Jesus, I can be forgiven. God's action is one of forgiveness. And now God can talk for the first time, verse 8. God is going to address Isaiah directly. He's going to say, okay, pal, now you're in shape for me to call you. Here's your call. And he literally says here, um, he is commissioned. That's the word that goes in, in the blank besides verse 8. God gives a challenge. The world is bad. Lots going on. I need, I need a spokesman. I need a voice. Whom will I send and who will go for me? In Isaiah's response, here am I, send me. He raises his hand. Notice here that when God speaks, now this is unique to me. When God speaks, and finally in verse 8, Isaiah is not terrified at hearing his voice. I think I would be, but evidently not. There is a pleading. There is um, there is a pleadingness, if that's a word, to God's voice. Who am I going to send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah's mission and his response to it was not like that of Moses. Now, that's interesting. Last week, if you go back to Exodus 3.11, God is calling Moses. I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses said, who, me? 
in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is called, having his lips now cleansed. God says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, why not me? Why not me? You see, when you're tempted, I think, in whatever it is that God is calling you to do, when you're tempted to say, oh, now, why me? What I want to immediately come to your mind, I would love for the Holy Spirit to just kind of breathe the breath over your brain and over your spirit and say, okay, pal, why not you? Why not me? I put a reference at the end of your outline. First Samuel 3.10, the little boy, Samuel, he's actually just a boy, is living, if you remember the story, it's another one of those boys who was born to a barren family. And his mother, Hannah, conceives him based on the prediction of Eli, the, uh, the priest. A year from now, you'll come back and you'll have a little boy on your knee, and she did. And she said, Lord, if you'll give me this little boy, I'll give him back to you. Now, my mother did that. And that's why you guys have to put up with me now. Okay? She literally gave me back to God. So, fast forward. She has taken him back to, uh, to the to the uh, priest, Eli, she said, okay, I made this vow. This little boy is now yours. What am I going to do with this little boy? And he begins to train him. Hannah, his mother, would visit him every year and bring him clothes and provisions. And, and she had other kids, by the way. But the man Samuel, who, by the way, was a watershed, pivotal person in the Old Testament, Things were terrible before Samuel, and they were cleaned up after Samuel. He couldn't have been more important. Samuel, as a little boy, began to have visions. God was calling him, but he didn't quite recognize it yet. And so he's in his little bedchamber, and he hears a voice, and he thinks it's Eli, who's a bit clueless, by the way. And he goes into the older man, Eli, and he says, yes, sir. And Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So he goes back to bed. This happens three times. And the third time, Eli says, you know what? Maybe it's God calling this kid. So he says, if he calls again, answer it this way. And so he did. And history was changed because of Samuel's answer when the Lord called the third time. Here's what he said. And here's what I'm going to encourage you to say the next time he calls. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Speak, Lord. I'm listening. Are you and I going to be like Moses? Why me? Or are we like Samuel going to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears? Lord, why not me? Why? I love these stories. We're going to hear the story of Jeremiah. Quite a different story next week in Jeremiah 1. I'll see you next Sunday.